Please remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verses 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him as once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because, he, because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, And hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service to me. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your faithful saints throughout all generations. And we pray that as we study your word and we see their example, you would conform us into his image. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 19 through 30 today. And as we are come today to this portion of Philippians, we come to a very warm and personal portion of the letter. Paul here resumes discussing with the Philippian church his travel plans, which he left off doing in the middle of chapter 1. And here he's talking to the Philippians about two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, that he wants to send to them. Timothy, he plans on sending sometime soon, but Epaphroditus says he thought necessary to send immediately to them. Both of these men, we can tell simply by the language, are very dear to Paul and very dear to the Philippian church. Paul's aim in sending them back to Philippi is to encourage the saints there. But the reference to Timothy and Epaphroditus is more than a simple update or or a simple encouragement. Their mention is particularly appropriate at this junction in the letter because it completes the pattern of teaching that Paul has been setting forth for us in chapter 2. You'll remember that he's exhorted in chapter 2 the Philippians to be humble. Look at verses 3 and 4. You'll remember we studied not too long ago where Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he expounded the example of Jesus Christ, who typifies this 
to the extreme. Jesus, who was in the very form of God, who did not count his equality with God, his prerogatives, something to be clutched, something to be grasped at, but he, but he divested himself of those things. And he came and he served in obedience to the Father, even to the point of death for you and for me, dying our cursed death on the cross. And now as he resumes talking about his travel plans, Paul speaks of these two other servants, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who have the mind of Christ, who have the service of Christ. Timothy and Epaphroditus, in other words, are types or pictures of Christ. They are men who exemplify in their lives what Paul has been urging the Philippians and us to do. This is where the the title for the sermon comes from. You might have noticed, Types of Christ. It doesn't mean what type, what kind of Christ are you talking about. It means type as in a picture, an image, something that typifies something else. Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus are living pictures of Jesus. In particular, he puts forward Timothy for his Christ-like mind, someone who cares for the interests of others foremost and for Jesus' church. And Epaphroditus, he puts forward for his Christ-like faithful endurance in suffering. Paul knows that we learn best by imitation. You can expound the doctrine. You can give the motivations. You can give specific instructions. But Paul understands that the way that we learn best, even perhaps the only way that we learn, is by imitating, by seeing. And so he puts forward Jesus and himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus as living pictures of Christ's life lived out in the world. In view of the interpersonal conflict that's going on within the church at Philippi, which Paul hinted at, you'll remember in the very beginning in chapter 2, where he exhorted them to be unified, have one love, be of one accord, be of the same mind. And he's going to talk specifically about their friction and their dissension in chapter 4 when he implores Yodia and Syntyche to be of one mind in the Lord. So they have, they have conflict within the church. But they also have pressures from the outside world. Remember in chapter 1, verse 29, he tells them that they, it had been granted to them on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And he's going to spend much of chapter 3 talking about their opponents. And so with all that's going on in this church, their church needs to see reflections of Jesus lived out in the flesh, as do we. So let's turn and consider Paul's travel plans in these two men, looking first at Timothy's Christ-like mind in verses 19 through 24. Look at verse 19. He begins by saying, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Paul tells the Philippians that he wants to send them Timothy. He trusts in the Lord, in fact. He is always planning, always working, always thinking in the Lord. And whenever he makes plans, he does so through prayer and through understanding God's word. Sending Timothy is probably what the Philippians were hoping for in sending Epaphroditus to Paul in the first place. You'll remember they had sent a gift and a letter to Paul through the hand of Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus did minister to Paul, as it says in verse 25. And many commentators suggest that they had probably hoped 
that Paul would send them Timothy in return to deal with the pressures that they were facing within their congregation and from the culture at large. They were familiar with Timothy, as it says in verse 22. Paul tells them, But you know his proven character, that as a son with a father he served with me in the gospel. Timothy was with Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 when the verse, when the, uh, in Acts chapter 16 when the church was planted there. And no doubt, the Philippians prized his ability as a pastor and a mediator. Paul, of course, prized Timothy as a proven asset in the apostolic band. And more than that, as a friend, a confidant, and a son in the faith. When he would near the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, as Paul really was this at that juncture, about to be executed, he sends for Timothy. He says, be diligent to come to me quickly. This was a man who was intimate with Paul, who knew Paul's trials, who suffered with Paul, who preached with Paul. Um, They were very, very close. He also says in verse 22 that Timothy has proven character. In Acts 16, when he joins Paul, We see that he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium in Acts 16, 1-3. Paul had taken him on his journeys, and Timothy's initial medal as a fellow soldier and minister had been proven, tempered, and deepened. He was Paul's very best. And even still, Paul plans on sending Timothy to the Philippians. And he does that, as he says in verse 19, so that he... That is, Paul will be encouraged. Look at that. But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged. Timothy is going to encourage the Philippians to help the Philippians. But this is an interesting look into Paul's pastoral method here. From Epaphroditus, he's learned about the trials and he's learned about the difficulties the Philippians are facing. And this letter that we have The Philippians is his response to that that comes with Epaphroditus. But as he sends Timothy, he is strongly intimating that the discouragement and the division that they're facing should be settled by his apostolic instruction and the exhortation that will come through the letter that we're reading today. He loves the Philippians and believing all good things about them, he trusts that Timothy's return visit will come with report about the good spiritual state of the church in Philippi. This is Paul's deepest desire, that they will grow in Christ-like love for one another. And so in arranging things the way that he does, by, by keeping Timothy for a short time and sending Epaphroditus first, Paul is pushing the Philippian church toward maturity. Possibly, in light of the fact that Paul believes that he will be released, that he will, uh, won't be executed, But he's not sure. He says, um, he will send Timothy as soon as I see how it goes with me. Knowing that that execution is a possibility, he's pushing the Philippians toward maturity. While at the same time, Paul loves the Philippians so much as to send his very best. I have no one like him, Paul says. Timothy is the one who is most like Paul himself. And he promises to make the return visit himself should he be released. This is his care for the church. And we know historically this is, in fact, what happened. Paul was released from this imprisonment and did make a return trip to Philippi and strengthen the church there. 
Timothy's worth is highlighted by contrasting him with others who are not of like spirit or like-minded with Paul. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, their own interests, not the things or the interests of Christ Jesus. In using these words, Paul is deliberately echoing his verse, uh, verses 3 and 4 in chapter 2, in which he urged the Philippians to look out not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's that context in which he introduced the mind of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, who did not care for his own interests in comparison to others. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, it says. Even though he was and is God, he took on human flesh to serve the needs of his people, to serve the needs of you and me in complete obedience to God the Father, even dying our cursed death on the cross that we deserved. That is the pattern that Paul saw repeated in his spiritual son Timothy, who sincerely cares, it says, for the well-being of the Philippians, for the well-being of others. He serves with Paul like a son, with his father in the gospel, it says in verse 22. Like Christ, who literally served us in the gospel through his death and his burial and his resurrection, having the same love and care for us as the eternal Father's love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, Jesus tells the disciples. He tells Thomas, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Timothy likewise imitated his father in the faith, Paul, who in turn imitated Christ. Like Paul and the Christ he followed, Timothy put others above himself for their joy and spiritual good. This is exactly what Paul did for the Philippians as well. As he says in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, he tells the Philippians, If I am being poured out as a drink offering, if I am being martyred for your sake, on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. This was Paul's heart, to spend and to be spent for the spiritual good of others. In Timothy's concern for the Philippians, they will see a man who seeks not his, not his own interests, but those of Christ Jesus. The interests of Christ Jesus primarily are the eternal and spiritual, though also temporal, welfare of his people. You'll notice that in verse uh, 20 and 21. He says, all seek their own things, not which are of Christ Jesus. What are the things of Christ Jesus? The welfare of the Philippian church, the welfare of you and me. In effect, when Paul writes this, he's saying, when I send Timothy to you, you will see his selfless in his selfless concern for you, the very attitude, the mind that you should extend to one another. He is a type. He is a picture of Jesus, the king who did not look out for himself, but became a suffering servant for me and for you. This is the mindset of looking first to the interests of others, which is the mindset of Christ. It is the mindset that Paul exhorted us to have, saying, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ. And in fact, this mind is in you. If you are in Christ Jesus, then the mind of Christ is your mind. The mind of Christ is our mind. We are united 
with him by faith. And we need to cultivate this mind and live in light of it. We need to learn to see one another as Christ's body, as those for whom Christ poured himself out for, those for whom Christ went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. What was his joy? The redemption of his people. Your redemption was the joy of Jesus. And as we cultivate the mind of Christ, as we look around the room, as we see the spiritual good and the growth of other people, we will have joy in that, just like Paul and just like Timothy. If you want to know what is on Christ's mind right now, even as he is in heaven, it is the spiritual good of the people sitting around you in this room. That is what Jesus thinks about. That is why Jesus came to earth. That is why Jesus intercedes before the Father. That's why, the Jesus, that's why Jesus sent us his spirit to live, to will, and to work in us to do his good pleasure, just like these men that Paul puts before us. We can cultivate this mind, which is ours, by praying as Paul does in chapter 1, verse 8. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness, fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Do you pray this way? Do you think this way? This mind is yours in Christ. Cultivate this mind. Begin to pray the scriptures for one another. Begin to see one another as God's people. We can undertake the time and expense needed in order to disciple one another, in order to pour, pour out for each other's spiritual good. Think about what it will cost Timothy, even without persecution, even without illness like Epaphroditus. What is it going to cost Timothy to get from Rome to Philippi in order to encourage that church? Hundreds of miles of hiking, boat trip, expense. Timothy is willing to pour himself out in his resources and his time for the spiritual good of others. And as we have been talking about discipling one another, about growing one another spiritually in this church recently, these are the kinds of things we'll need to do. We need to cultivate this mind and begin to look for ways to give uh, good to each other spiritually. In commenting on this passage, John Calvin said, For it must necessarily be that one or the other of two dispositions prevails over us. Either that overlooking ourselves, we are devoted to Christ and those things that are Christ's, or that unduly intent on our own advantage, we serve Christ in a superficial manner. And so we must ask, where are our thoughts? Have we cultivated the mind which is yours in Christ Jesus? It's not that the Christian is totally unconcerned to the point of total neglect of himself or herself, but being devoted to Christ and those things which are His, those people which are His, will keep us from serving Christ in a superficial manner. Timothy was that kind of man. He was someone in whom the Spirit of God resided, and he was actively being conformed into Christ's image. You could see it in his motivations, and you could see it in his priorities. He put the spiritual and eternal good of others first. For those very reasons, Paul desired to send him, but he would have to wait to see how it went with him first, as he says in verse 
23. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. In the meantime, Paul tells the Philippians that he's sending Epaphroditus back to them. Look at verse 25. Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. There's an undeniable note of explanation here in verse 25. There's the feeling that Paul, Paul feels like he needs to explain why it is Epaphroditus that's coming back with the letter in hand rather than Timothy or rather uh, than himself. Epaphroditus um, was sent to minister and stay with Paul, but he was the one returning with the letter instead of Timothy. So why is Paul sending him back? For a few reasons. One is that Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus, it says, was longing for them. In verse 26, he says, I'm sending him back because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He was distressed because they had heard that he was ill. The word that Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus' distress is one of great intensity. The only other use of this word in the New Testament is the description of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he begins to be distressed and sweat drops of blood before going to the cross. Epaphroditus' longing, his distress over the Philippian church was great. And his sentiments reflect Paul's own feelings towards the Philippians. Paul tells him, I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ in chapter 1 verse 8. And so Epaphroditus has been longing for you all as well. Paul's own affection for his Philippians' friends are reflected in Epaphroditus's, will be reflected in Epaphroditus's reunion with them. Notice, though, that he's not distressed because he was ill, but not even because he was near death. Paul makes this point at least three times to the Philippians, saying that Epaphroditus's illness was so great that we all believed that he was going to die. Epaphroditus' distress comes because his illness might cause his home church to be distressed. Throughout this passage, you, it's impossible to miss all the care and the concern that the people have in this passage for one another. Timothy is Paul's son. Epaphroditus is longing Epaphroditus is distressed. Paul will rejoice when Epaphroditus is there. But none of the people in this passage have this great concern and this intensity of emotion for themselves, but for other people. Epaphroditus is concerned that the Philippians might be distressed about his illness. Paul will rejoice when the Philippians receive their minister, Epaphroditus, their servant, Epaphroditus, back and healthy. Their joy will give Paul joy. The distress over Epaphroditus gave him sorrow, as did Epaphroditus' illness. And in sending him back in good health, Paul is just again finding his joy in the good of others. Epaphroditus also shows us how to follow Christ in the midst of suffering. Jesus, Paul tells us, obeyed to the point of death. In chapter 2, verse 8. He said, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And following his lead, Epaphroditus emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death. As it says 
in verse 30, among other places, because for the work of Christ, Epaphroditus came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service to me. But God had mercy and raised Epaphroditus from his deathbed and sent him back to the Philippians. As the author of Hebrews might say, the Philippians are receiving him back from the dead, figuratively speaking. This this kind of Christ-like willingness to suffer is what Paul wants the Philippians and us to see in Epaphroditus. He tells them that his illness was what the price that he paid for the work of Christ in verse 30. Some might be willing to explain Epaphroditus' illness just as an infection, some medical. This is the kind of thing that happened in the ancient world when there were, were more plagues than we have today, even though we have some today. Right? People just died from illnesses. His suffering might appear less heroic or less directly related to the cause of the gospel than Paul's beatings, Paul's chains, Paul's imprisonment. Paul was arrested and accused and mistreated because he was preaching the gospel. We might be tempted to think that Paul underwent true suffering. Paul underwent real persecution. Epaphroditus, on the other hand, just got sick. Even unbelievers get sick. But no, Paul says Epaphroditus' sickness entered his life precisely because he was following Jesus and transporting the gifts and service from the Philippian church to Jesus' servant Paul in Rome. He exemplifies Christ by not regarding his life in order to supply what was lacking in the Philippians' gift. So as we look at at characters, as we look at types of Christ in the Bible like Paul or like Timothy, we might be tempted to say we're nothing compared to Paul. And that's probably true. We are not in general undertaking missionary journeys and being beaten and imprisoned and persecuted for our faith. Imitating the apostle and martyr seems far beyond us, but it doesn't matter because here Paul is holding up Epaphroditus as someone who mirrors the life of Christ. Great comfort in the book of Philippians is that when Jesus indwells us, he makes our lives count for the gospel no matter how little or humble we are. We may simply be a messenger who knows how to work hard and travel and serve like Epaphroditus. And that is, in fact, Paul says, the work of Christ. And he knows this, and for that reason, he lavishes on Epaphroditus no fewer than five titles of respect and companionship. Look at verse 25. He says, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. He is a brother, one who is in Christ and has the spirit of love and devotion to the members of Christ's family. His commitment to the gospel is evidence. He is a fellow worker prepared to take his share of burdens in Christian service. A fellow soldier, one who suffers for Christ's sake. A messenger, he says. Literally, the word he uses is apostle. A little a apostle, a messenger, but a great title of respect. And a minister, a word that the New Testament typically uses to refer to priestly service in a worship setting. In commending Epaphroditus this way, Paul is not only spotlighting these men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as examples of what he wants to see in the lives of the Philippians, 
he's giving an example of how to follow the only explicit command that is actually in our passage today. Do you see it? There's only one explicit command in our passage today. It's verse 29. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Paul gives similar or complementary instruction like this in a number of places throughout his epistles. He's letting us know that churches, local churches, are supposed to embody a culture of honoring one another. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16.18, Paul mentions several from the Corinthian church that had visited him, and he says, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Acknowledge or honor such men. He tells the church in Rome, in fact, to outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.10 As a church, as Christ's body, this is part of our uniqueness in this world. It's part of what sets us apart from a crooked and twisted generation. We looked at last time we were in the book of Philippians. Twisted generation who spend their time grumbling and disputing and complaining. This culture of honoring and esteeming one another in Christ is part of what distinguishes us as citizens of a different world, of a heavenly country, as Paul will say in chapter 3, verse 20. In doing this, in honoring one another's work for Christ, we're doing nothing other than acknowledging the gospel itself. Jesus tells us that all the truly converted will hear a commendation just like Epaphroditus's when they are welcomed into heaven. And Jesus looks at them and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. It is God Himself who praises what He enables in us. And here we're called to do the very same with one another. Paul calls us to honor such men not because he is into flattery or not because he is part of the self-esteem movement. Paul praises Epaphroditus for what he did. You'll notice there in verse 30, for the work of Christ. We're called to observe in one another what God is developing in each of us. As each of us seeks to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, we're called to notice and affirm where we see God working in each of us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Esteem what God is doing in others for the work of Christ. Over the past year, I could think of Pastor Sexton and the elders and the sheer amount of time far above and beyond any normal work week, even given all of the crises that were going on, uh, spent calling and praying and teaching and counseling, pouring their lives out for the work of Christ and for His church. But it's not just the elders either, is it? We could mention Katie Langenberg and all the time and trouble that she undergoes in order to organize a women's Bible study, even though she has young kids at home and another baby on the way. We could think of the need noggles giving us things like the Epiphany Party and gathering us together and using their gifts not as entertainers, but so that we might think about Christ coming to all nations, so that we might honor Jesus as a group 
and consider different portions of his word. Who hasn't in this room partaken of the hospitality at the Christensen house? Who hasn't benefited from the young men, the Bramers, salting our parking lot, shoveling our steps so that we could come and worship the Lord today? All of this is not preaching, it's not missionary service, it's not being persecuted or beaten or thrown into prison, but all of this is the work of Christ. And as you see the work of Christ in and through your fellow members in this church, we're called to honor that. We're called to notice that. We're called to esteem it. Every Christian that you know will be forever glorious inside and out with the glory of the risen Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Honor what you see in your brothers and sisters, old and young. Whatever Christ-like characteristics resonate with the qualities that Paul praised in these two men, esteem such people not only with your words, but with your attitudes and actions. Affirm them and imitate them. As Paul will say in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have, in, you have for us a pattern. We are, to do, we are to do this. We are to honor one another. Chrysostom, the great early Christian preacher in a homily on Philippians said, Give Epaphroditus, as saints ought to do, the reception due a saint with all joy. Paul says this for the sake of the congregation rather than Epaphroditus. The profit of doing good is greater than that of receiving a reward. End quote. He knew, and Paul knew, that the real benefit of honoring the work of Christ in others is for the church itself, far more than for the one who is honored. Paul gives us an example of how to do this in the very structure of the letter he's writing. He's, he's just giving the Philippians his travel plans, but in the way that he does it, he honors Epaphroditus, he tells about Paul's Christ-like, or Timothy's Christ-like mind, and he shows us how to do this. He gives us examples, types of Christ to look at. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, example is the most powerful rhetoric. In other words, you can lay out principles and inform men and women of their duty, and you can use the finest tools of rhetoric. You can use all of the theological reasoning that you would like, all of your ability to persuade, but the most powerful rhetoric, the most powerful form of persuasion, and in fact the most effective form of discipleship is that of example. So look at Paul, look at Timothy, look at Epaphroditus, and as you see the life of Christ lived in and through them, look through Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and see the Christ that they are imitating but also look around. Look around in this congregation. Do you see fathers and mothers in the faith? Honor their example and imitate their faith. Do you see sons and daughters? Do you see those who need to be discipled? Show them what it looks like to surrender your plans to Jesus' control 
and have Jesus turn your cares outward towards the things of Christ, towards others. Look through Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Lord Jesus whose gospel they preached, by whose spirit they lived and served. In them we can glimpse imperfectly, but truly, the compassion of the Christ, the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for your word and for your spirit that makes it powerful and effective in our lives. We pray that you would do so, so that we might see your Son and we might imitate him. In Jesus' name, amen.